last week, um, uh, Tony shared, and uh, Tony talked about parenting, about kids, and uh, I was able to catch some of that, not all, but some, uh, just because of traveling. But, uh, but anyway, we went down uh, to spend a few days with uh, the organization called Lemonade, uh, which ministers to a slum in uh, central, um, or in Guatemala City in the middle of it, uh, just a big ravine that people came to uh, because they were escaping the Civil War several decades ago. And they came and they live there now. It's the largest slum in Central America. Uh, 80 to 100,000 people live in this canyon, basically just a big ditch in the ground and no grass, just concrete uh, and just uh, uh, poverty everywhere. Just kind of amazing uh, that when you go down and you see something like that and you come back uh, to the beautiful area. was the prayer, <laughs> the, the prayer uh, that this organization, uh, that they had, uh, just m- so much more prayer than we experience today and that we share. And uh, it was a little bit convicting, to be honest with you, uh, because of their work is with the, the poor, their work is with uh, gangs, uh, very dangerous at, at certain times. Uh, to, to even be there, and so uh, they pray a lot, and uh, just kind of reinforce how important that is, and just the, the need to ha- have God in everything that they do. You know, and also in, in being out of the country, you've probably maybe done it yourself, when you come back, uh, you just appreciate what you have, uh, just nice clean water out of the tap, you, you know, you have freedom, you don't have to look over your shoulder, you don't have to worry about things, we just, we're very blessed in this great country. And one of the things I've discovered is that while we have a lot of things to be proud of in America, um, and, and comparing it to other countries as well, uh, there is one thing, and we're going to talk a little bit about this today, and we'll kind of move into our topic. There's one thing in our history that is a national embarrassment and shame, and that is America's history of slavery. Uh, for almost 250 years, in 1619 to 1865, Uh, 1865 is the year that the 13th Amendment to the Constitution uh, was established outlawing slavery. But during that time, six to seven million Africans were kidnapped and brought to the U.S. and exploited to work to help build this nation. And we're still wrestling today with how to resolve that, aren't we? How to deal with this national shame and the repercussions of it. So understand, as we talk about the subject today and, and kind of move kind of back into our, our, our topic of, of the workplace, understand that slavery is a very sensitive subject. And when the Bible talks about that, we have to have some discretion and some understanding. And we're going to go to, to 1 Timothy chapter 1 to kind of get a, a, a scripture, a background. It says this, we also know that the law is, not, is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their father or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. Now, that's a really interesting verse of Scripture, and you could probably spend a lot of time talking about a lot of topics there, some that are even controversial today. But I want to pick out that one phrase where the, the Bible says that slave traders are in the list of the most grievous sins that someone can commit ungodly, irreligious, unholy, and slave traders are included in that. 
You know, there are some people who are always trying to find something to nitpick about the Bible, and critics of the Bible suggest that the Bible might even condone slavery, but it's obvious that that is not true. And we're going to see today that the Bible speaks to every situation that a Christian might actually find themselves in at some point, and in that time, there were slaves and masters. But the Bible teaches more than anything the value and the importance and the significance of all people, that no one is greater or lesser than anybody else. And we have to remember that, to be honest with you, because we can all look on other people, look down on them, and we can devalue them. And what I've found is when we do that, it's, through in, it's because of insensitivity and ignorance. You know, I have to be kind of honest with you, I have never been around a lot of folks who are Latinos. I have an appreciation of them, and, and I know that they're, they're very hard workers, but I've never been around them until I was immersed in that culture for a week in Guatemala. I want to tell you that is one of the most beautiful places, not the slum necessarily, but the country itself, and most beautiful people. I mean, there are people there that we talk to and spend time with that, that I've become very good friends with, never even knew anything about that culture, never knew about the love for Christ that they had there, never knew about their, their focus on prayer. A lot of my own ignorance of a whole nation of people has been kind of washed away by appreciating and just spending time with them and, and getting to know them a little bit better. And when we do that, we understand God's big creation. The Bible is clear that we're all equal in God's sight. And that heaven's going to be filled with people from all, all nations, all um, colors, all over the world. That's what God has in mind, that God doesn't see it in that way, and that we're wrong whenever we do. And so when we talk about today this topic of slavery, we've got to kind of get a big perspective, not just in what we have experienced or know about, but even beyond that. Because slavery has existed almost uh, in some form from almost the beginning of history. Joseph, who was the great-grandson of Abraham, the father of Jewish people, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Another great figure in the Bible, the Old Testament, Daniel, was a slave in, in Babylon, and yet he became a great hero for us today. Today we know that slavery in the form of sex trafficking is a huge problem. Young women are, are, uh, are kidnapped and forced into sexual servitude. Young ladies are groomed, they're given money and drugs and manipulated emotionally right here in central Kentucky. In our own county, there have been instances of sex trafficking that is one form of slavery. Men and women are trafficked for domestic use all over the world, and they're enslaved through fear or through ignorance. And that's the kind of situation the Bible strongly condemns when it says that anyone who takes another's freedom away from them with no cause is a lawbreaker and unholy. You know, what I've discovered is it's easy for us sometimes to think about this and to say, yeah, you know, slavery is horrible, sex trafficking is horrible. But before we leave the subject, let me say that we have a category of people today who are being denied their very rights of life, justice, and opportunity, and even life. And that is the unborn. And we're taking that from them. We are stealing the life they could have through the practice of abortion. So there are a lot of instances of slavery and servitude that we could look at today and see the great injustice in that that we need as Christians need to speak out against. Let's look at our scripture today in the book of Colossians because that's where we've been for several weeks. We have one more message in this series, The Big Jesus. That's next week. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about 
the idea of slavery, as we've already introduced, and we're in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 and following. Paul's going to give advice to those Christians who are slaves and who are owners as well. And he'll talk, talk about the balance of that and how we should view that. Here's what he says. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from heaven, from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. We might ask the question, why in this book, the book of Colossians that we've been studying, where we've talked about theology and also practical things, why would Paul address slavery? And the answer is because slavery was a common practice in the early church. In fact, one of the books of the Bible that, that Paul wrote, the book of Philemon, was written to, to Philemon, who was actually a slave owner. One of his slaves was Onesimus, and so he writes and addresses the relationship they have and encourages him to give him his freedom and count him as a brother. Slavery was a common practice in the early church. Someone has estimated that one-third to one-half of the people in that day were bond servants. Now, that just kind of blew my mind when I read that. Half, a third to a half of the people may have been servants. Why? Because there were two major classes. There was the very wealthy and the very poor. And those who were wealthy would oftentimes have many, many, many servants that, they, that would serve them and they would provide for financially. Now, why would someone be a bond servant? How would they come to that point? Well, there were several reasons. For example, if someone were in debt to another person and couldn't pay them, maybe you had to have money for health care, medical, whatever it might be, you might borrow money from another person, and if you couldn't pay them back, then you and your family might actually become their slaves for a few years to pay off the debt. It was very common. Or if you had no means at all, if you were very poor, if you had no home, no food, no job, uh, no clothing, nothing, then someone might take you in, you might volunteer to serve someone to stay alive, and they would feed you, clothe you, and house you for some time. Or if you were taken as a prisoner of war, if you weren't killed in the battle, oftentimes you would be taken to the victor's home, their country, and you'd be given the opportunity for freedom and even sometimes, some cases, for prosperity. And you look at the story of Daniel in, in the book, uh, in, in the, by the Old Testament. He went to Babylonia, was carried there as a, as a uh, prisoner of war, actually prospered, was given opportunity to become a prince, and even became a leader uh, in, in the country because he had entered it as a slave. Also, children and orphans were often taken in as servants. In that day, they had, didn't have a lot of regard for children who didn't have a parents or a home or who had been kicked out of their home. And so they would take them in, they would become the servants in, in the household. Christianity, though, changed that because they began adopting these orphans, not as their servants, but as their own children. And you know, through that, there's a beautiful analogy of how we're brought into a relationship with Christ, that we are, are, are only qualified to be servants, but, but God takes us in and He makes us not a servant, but His own family, a part of His, his own household. So you look at all these other ways that people became servants, and so in a strange sort of way, the practice of bond servants was almost necessary in order for the poor to be provided for. It was almost important in their economy in that day for survival. Now, we contrast that with what we know about American slavery, and it, it, it is not the same thing. It never justifies it at all. And there are a couple of big differences also as well. 
In that day, slavery was not racial. In that day, all races were slaves, had slaves, and even some slaves had their own slaves. You can see kind of a hierarchy of of what happened in that day, and that some slaves even had other people that worked under them as well. Also in that day, slavery, it wasn't always a lifetime status. It might last a while, six to seven years, and many times they were free by the age of 30. Many of them would learn a trade while they were under uh, servitude, uh, servitude, and they would start a family, and when they were free or paid their bond, they would be set free to prosper and have their own lives. Also, because of the circumstances I mentioned before, it was oftentimes voluntary. There are some big differences that we know of slavery in modern history, and that is the context for our scripture because we're not living in a day where that's a common practice. We got to kind of understand what is Paul trying to say about slavery here? He is not condoning slavery. He's not saying it was appropriate just because he says they're, you know, get rid of slavery. He doesn't say get rid of slavery. He's not saying it was the right thing. What he's doing is he's trying to help Christians live in the reality of our world, not to condone the practice of slavery itself. And so when we look at this, we say, well, then what is he talking about here and how do we interpret this? And I think it's pretty obvious that there is a cultural equivalent today, and that is the workforce between the employer and the employee. And so I want to encourage you to read it in that context. When you read this, think about this for you practically as being, how do I understand this? What does it mean? And here's what I think he's trying to say is that work is important, that we're recruited to work, and that work is a part of our worship. Now, maybe you never thought about it in that context. Maybe you always thought worship is what I do on Sunday and work is what I do, you know, five or six days of the week, the rest of the week. But understand that work is a part of worship. It's all about how we do it. In Colossians 1.23, Paul says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Do it with all of your heart. And in this, you know, Paul talks about several ways that we can think about employees and how employees are attitude toward work. Uh, let me identify three of them that Paul's going to talk about. The first one is the, uh, the take this job and shove it guy. You know, you ever work with that guy? You, you know, like, I hope you're not that guy, but some of you probably worked with him. The second one is the boss is coming guy. And the third one is the kiss up guy. And, you know, I used to work in the secular workplace for a while, and I've worked with all of these guys, to be honest with you. I, I know them all. I've kind of seen the way they, they go at it. Uh, for example, the take this job and shove it guy, he doesn't want to be there. He doesn't, he doesn't want to have a job there at all. He doesn't want to obey the boss. He wants to do his own thing. He always has a better way to do it than the boss does. And in fact, he even tells the boss sometimes, hey, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. You're amazed sometimes the guy keeps his job, but he knows just enough in most cases that they just put up with it, but he's not a fun guy to be around. You know, the Bible says in counter to that, it says, obey your earthly masters in everything. And even though we we might put the word employer in there, if someone is paying you to do something, then you have an obligation to do what they ask you to do as long as you're in their employment. The, The second guy is the boss is coming guy. And he's a guy who goofs off, who never does anything until the boss actually walks in the room. And then suddenly he's the hardest worker around. He's probably got everything kind of set up so he can fall right into a routine when the boss comes and the boss actually may think that he is a great worker. You've heard about lip service? Well, this is the eye service guy. He wants to be seen working all the time. In counter to that, the Bible says, do this not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with the sincerity of heart and with reverence for the Lord. 
So it, it, the Bible says you don't just work when the boss is watching you. You work all the time. A couple, a few years ago, I, I was building a home, and I had a contractor that, was, that I was paying to, to do it, and he had some employees, and he said, Randy, can you be there when I'm not? And I'm like, well, I don't know, you know exactly what we're doing. And he goes, oh, no, just be there, because if you're there, my guys will be working. But if you leave and I leave, you know, they may not do anything while we're gone. You know, that's kind of a sad commentary of our country, isn't it, today? But a lot of people only work when the boss is there. And then the third guy is the kiss-up guy. This is the guy always flattering the boss, always trying to, you know, to get ahead and be seen as a hard worker. And counter to that, the Bible says, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, not for somebody else, but you're doing it for the Lord. So what he's saying is have an attitude in your heart that work is not just work, you're not just doing it for that person, but you're, you're doing it for the Lord, and work is worship. It all starts with the heart. In fact, the Bible says that we should have a sincerity of heart. Sincerity of heart. And that's how we should work. Have you ever had a job that your heart just wasn't in? That your heart wasn't there? You didn't want to be there? I had a job like that. My first summer job in college, uh, my, my friend Tom and I, we worked at the Kentucky Fairgrounds. And, uh, you know, it's a big, big area with Freedom Hall and everything. And, and while I was there, I met all of these aforementioned guys, every one of them. And I'd been accustomed to working on the farm, and uh, I wasn't used to, to the way people didn't work or how they avoided work. Um, but, but so anyway, we go in in this area. They had several prisoners working along with us. We were kind of worried about that. Uh, but we went to work at the fairgrounds. The first day we went there, uh, they gave us a broom and some trash bags, and they sent us to the top of Freedom Hall. And uh, they said, we want you to, uh, the night before they'd had a big concert, and we want you to clean out Freedom Hall to push everything to the bottom and, and get all the trash out. Well, I don't know if you've ever done anything like that, ever been to a concert and seen the aftermath, but it's pretty unbelievable and pretty disgusting. Everything under the sun was there. And so we worked that day, and it was pretty bad, and we thought, how bad could it get? So the next morning, we went back to work, and they sent us to the top of Freedom Hall, to bring down because there was another concert that night and so on and so forth and truck pulls and circuses and everything else. And so after a few days of that, our hearts weren't really in that. We didn't really want to do that. And so uh, and we had about a 45 minute to an hour drive and all the way to work and all the way back, Tom and I talked about how we were going to quit. We couldn't wait to quit. What was the scenario? How would we quit? And what would we say when we quit? I mean, our hearts were just not there. And both of us got... Uh, promotion. He was taller, so he was sent to the marquee to put up letters, and I got a chance to plant flowers in that big star out front for hours, for days. We planted petunias in there. My heart wasn't in that either, and so finally, finally we quit because our hearts weren't there. We got a much better job. We got a job where we got to drive an old Jeep every day and be on our own outside. It was an awesome job. I'll tell you about that sometime. But you know what? If you ever had a job that your heart isn't in, you know what I'm talking about, right? And if you got a job like that today, you got to either get a heart change or you got to get a job change, one or the other. Maybe some of you find yourself there. And if you choose to stay in the job, you got to have a sincere heart and you got to make a commitment to doing it well. And that's what Paul says when he says, work as for the Lord and not for men. Work for the Lord, not for people. That's how we have to think about it. Bob Dylan had a song years ago that said, everybody's got to serve somebody. And while well, you may not appreciate Bob Dylan, there, there's always going to be a change of chain of command. 
And there's almost always going to be somebody above you when it comes to work. Now, maybe you're self-employed, but in most cases, you still have to please somebody. You're still working for somebody to try to make them happy, right? But here's the thing as a Christian you've got to understand is that Jesus is always at the top of the leadership chain. He's always at the top, regardless of how many people are really above you uh, in the chain of command, Jesus is at the top if you're a believer. Even if your boss is a pagan, and even if you work in a pagan world, pagan culture, Jesus needs to always be at the top in your mind. One day your boss will answer to him, maybe he doesn't realize that or she doesn't realize that, but it will happen. But here's the thing, we can't work for them, we work for Christ. We belong to him, he gave us a job that we have, whether it's easy or difficult, we just have to acknowledge it, that God's put us there. God may move us, but he's put us there for the moment, right? We work for him and we ought to have the attitude uh, to serve him. Whatever you do, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now, what do you do if that is not true in your life? What do you do uh, that your work is not a joy to you and your heart isn't in it and, uh, and you need and you want to improve? Well, let me give you some suggestions. First of all, look at your own attitude. Look at your attitude about going into work and be honest if you're not working up to the potential that you have or you're not working as you would for the Lord. If you're not working for your boss like you would for Jesus, if he was your boss and you knew it, then maybe you need to think about that. Second thing, clarify your job. If you need help figuring out what you're supposed to do and how to do it well, be willing to seek help. Try to have somebody help you say, hey, let's walk through this. What do I need to be doing better? If you can't do your job, just physically can't do your job, or you don't mentally know how to do your job, get some training or get a new job. Get to do something, right? Now, if you won't do your job, it'll probably all work out down the road somewhere because you're going to get fired uh, anyway, and you'll have to worry about it. But you could probably avoid that if you put some effort into it. But you ought to change your attitude. Get a job you can and will do as unto the Lord. Because what I've found is that when you come in or I come in with a good attitude, it makes a ton of difference about looking at work. An employer is looking for somebody who will show up. That's a big thing, right? Be drug-free, work the full time they're, there, they're getting paid for, work even when the boss isn't standing there watching. Don't steal from them. Take initiative. Take some pride in your work. I think all of those things would be a way that we could serve people as if we're serving the Lord. Now, maybe your job isn't the best job. Maybe you don't make a lot of money. Maybe you got work, work long hours. You got poor benefits. And if that's true, then maybe you want to get challenged, get motivated, do something about that. But I will tell you also that I've seen several people who have jobs they don't love or jobs maybe they do love that are good jobs, some making really good money. But God puts a call in their life to do something else. I've seen them leave that job and, and find a job that may pay less. But it's more rewarding, oftentimes in ministry of some sort. And I got to use Tony as an example because, you know, about five or more years ago, uh, for, for several years before that, Tony had been listening to God and God was, was drawing him into ministry. He didn't know that, kind of felt that, but they had a great job in architect and architecture. And, and, uh, but God said, you know, there's something more rewarding. And, and Tony left that, left, uh, made a lot more money there than he makes here. I can tell you that for sure. But God called him into that. And we need to recognize, acknowledge that. But a lot of people just feel like, you know, God's got a pl another place for me, a greater purpose. 
maybe not the same money, but better rewards. Remember that when you work for the Lord, even if it's in a secular role, he's a great boss. He's a great boss. He sees everything, and he rewards you in ways beyond money. He has a great retirement plan. In fact, his retirement plan is out of this world, literally, when you retire. And you are going to also store up treasures in heaven. When what you do is going to be saved for you to enjoy later on. And the Bible also says you're going to have an inheritance because he doesn't see you as an employee. Instead, he sees you as a child, as an heir. And one day he will give you an inheritance. Now, you and I, we're going to see injustice in the workplace, but one day things will be made right. You know, I don't know of any place that someone might work that they didn't see some injustice, but God will make that right at some point. You just got to let it go and, and give it to God. In fact, the Bible says anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there's no favoritism. There is no favoritism with God. And speaking of favoritism in the workplace, which is where you oftentimes see it, Paul addresses not only the employee, but the bosses as well, the employer. We drop down in, in Colossians chapter 4, first verse, it says, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. There is a greater responsibility for those who are in control, those who are in power. There is more accountability, or should be, for people who direct others. Those who are under you, you need to treat them justly and fairly. Anyone who makes decisions for another person that they are obligated to follow, you know, whether it be a parent, which is not really a, I guess that's a job, your kid's not, not a job, but um, whether it's a parent, whether it's a, you know, a manager, an owner, a foreman, whatever it may be, whatever role you might have, if you lead others, there's more responsibility, not only that you treat them fairly, but also that you are Jesus, you show Jesus to them, that you model that, because this is kind of the old golden rule, you know, treat others as you would have uh, others treat you. A boss has limits, obviously, but in that day, a servant didn't have any rights. And so when Paul tells a, a, the bosses, you know what, you got to treat them fairly, uh, it, it would be something that was almost an option in that day. He says, be just, don't abuse them, don't abuse your authority, don't take advantage of them. Not only because you're a Christian, but also because you as a boss, you have a boss too. You have a manager, a master, if you will, above you at the top of chain of command in heaven, and he has some requirements for you as well. You know, when we look at Jesus, we see that Jesus is our master. In fact, he's a master in everything. And he's an awesome master. He's kind and loving and generous and fair. He's a great boss to work for. You know, a lot of people don't want to let him be their boss or master because they don't think they're going to enjoy life if they put their life under the authority of Christ. But I want to tell you something. Jesus is the best master ever. He's the best boss ever. And he calls every one of us to come and, and to serve under him. But let me just say this, that you must make a choice as to who you will serve. Maybe unlike your job, you don't get a big choice. Maybe you don't feel like you have a choice as to where you go and what you do now, but you do have a choice between Jesus as master or Satan as master of your life. And when you choose Jesus, he's going to be not only your master and your Lord, but also your savior. He'll be the one to step in to give you eternal life. And when you look at Jesus, he's not just your master, your savior, your Lord, he's also our servant, which is a beautiful picture of what being a boss is all about, being a servant leader. 
that Jesus came to earth not only to save us, but also to serve us. In fact, he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is a great example for us today if you lead people, or also if you serve people, how to lead as a servant. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, and your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." And so while Jesus came to be our master and our savior and our Lord, he also came to teach us how to serve by giving his life for us. And he asked that every one of us choose him to be the Lord and the boss and the master of our lives. And so the greatest question that I could leave you with today from the scripture about employment, which is how the context in our world is have you put your life under that of Jesus? Have you made him the Lord and the master of your life? Are you living and working for him? And if you would have to say that, no, I haven't done that, but I know there's value in that. I know that I want to talk about that. I would love to have a conversation with you. You can contact me anytime. I'm going to be down front in just a few moments that you can just step over during our communion time and and we can have a conversation. I'd love to pray with you about whatever's going on in your your world But right now, we are going to transition to a time, an important time in our service, a time when we see when the master became the servant. You know, Jesus came and he served his disciples for for, uh, several months or perhaps even years, but but he served them uh, washing their feet and providing meals for them and no doubt ministering to them in many ways. But he was always seen as their master until the day that he humbled himself and he gave his life and he was obedient to the cross, even death on the cross, as Paul says. And he served us. And he serves you and I today because his death affords us the chance to have life. In our time of communion, it's our tradition that we just come forward up these uh, side aisles to the table and then circle back into our seats. And during this time, it's a moment that we choose to submit ourselves to his authority and we acknowledge his lordship in our life. It's a time that we also acknowledge what he did for us, how he became a slave for us, how he, being the the Lord of all and God of all, humbled himself and died that we might have life eternal so that we could escape that. And so we invite you to come and share with us in this time of, of communion. You take a piece of bread and a cup of juice that symbolizes the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. If you are a believer, we invite you to come and do that. And take that, and the Bible says that we should examine ourselves. Not that we are worthy or, or, or worth this, but instead that, that we humble ourselves and acknowledge our unworthiness through the participation in the Lord's Supper. Let's bow together as we go to this time of worship and celebration.